First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. You can follow along as I read it aloud. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's uh, pray together before we begin. God, we, uh, every week we come and we want to sit under your word. Um, your word is not something that we are called to necessarily be uh, master over, but your word is something that is supposed to take mastery over our hearts and our lives. And with that kind of uh, heart and attitude, we approach you and we ask God that you would speak. Uh, speak to us through your word. Uh, speak to us by the power of the spirit. Help us to see uh, the things that you uh, want us to see. And uh, as we just remember, again, uh, who you are and especially what you've done for us in Christ, uh, may that do something uh, powerful in our hearts and form our hearts and transform our hearts, all for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we started a new series last week, and what we're doing is we're going to look at the topic of fear, and we're going through a sermon series on the topic of fear. And this series will probably last through Easter. And here's, here's the general plan or the general outline of what we're going to do. Um, you know, last week I introduced the topic. I think over the next two or three sermons, we're going to look at fear more broadly so that we kind of have this proper framework in terms of how we should understand fear. And after that, what I plan to do is go through some of the specific things that uh, we are all generally susceptible to in terms of fear, things like uh, fear of man or things like fear of death and those kinds of things. And the reason that we want to spend some time looking at fear is because fear is this powerful, powerful force that touches upon our lives. I said last week it's like this constant companion that is always there. Fear and anxiety, it sometimes can feel like this cage that we're trapped in and we need to be free from. Fear distorts how we look at the world, how we look at reality and leaves us in a state of confusion. And last week, what we talked about is fear and how it is related to faith, because fear is ultimately a spiritual issue. Uh, fear is an issue uh, related to our faith, what we put our trust in. Fear is not simply this uh, psychological issue or something that happens to us. Uh, in the Bible, fear is not also a morally neutral thing, but fear is ultimately a byproduct of where we are putting our trust in. Now today what we're going to do is we're going to continue to look at fear broadly and uh, draw out the connection between fear and faith a little bit more, but in a more specific way by thinking about how fear relates to humility. We are an anxious people. We, uh, especially I think in New York, <laughs> are an anxious people. If you just observe the world, if you observe people in the city, you see anxious people all the time. We are anxious about getting to work on time, about the subways working. We are anxious about the financial markets and investments. 
We are anxious about rent going up. We are anxious about finding the right roommate. We are anxious about getting married. We are anxious about the next step in our careers. We are anxious about where we're going to live. We're anxious about the future. We're anxious about maybe even our sports teams. We're anxious about making the right choices in life. And there are just so many reasons to be anxious, right? We are an anxious people, and there are many different people, uh, there are many different ways in which we deal with these kinds of anxieties. You know, some people take medication. Some people see a therapist. Some people drink and smoke. Some people eat. Some people exercise. Some people do things like meditation or uh, mindfulness. I think it's called mindfulness. Some people have, uh, you know, something as simple as like these bodily you know, responses where you just kind of shake your leg because <laughs> you're, all, you're just so anxious all the time. Right? We have these ways of dealing with our anxiety. And some of these things may help calm our anxieties, at least in the moment. But you know what happens? Our anxieties always seem to come back, don't they? All the time. Here's something interesting that I read this week, but uh, we actually might be more anxious compared to uh, many other countries in the world. There was a study that came out in 2017, and the aim of the study was to look at the prevalence of something called generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, according to the DSM, what that basically means is uh, it's a kind of anxiety that uh, prohibits you from doing your daily responsibilities. So it's not just kind of a general anxiety that many people feel, but it's a very strong kind of anxiety that prevents you from doing what you're supposed to do in terms of your daily responsibilities. And uh, the study was really interesting because what it found was there's a much higher prevalence of general anxiety disorder in wealthier countries than in poorer countries. That surprised the researchers because here's what they were thinking. You know, in poorer countries, they have more to worry about. There is uh, a lot of times there's political instability. A lot of times there's economic instability. They have less access to proper health care. There's a higher uh, rate of death in some of these places. And so they expected it to at least be on par. But here's what they found. Wealthier nations actually have a greater degree and greater prevalence of general anxiety disorder. Interesting, right? Now, the study didn't really give a definitive explanation as to why that might be the case, and I'm sure there's a lot of different reasons as to why that might be the case. Personally, if I was going to take a guess as to why that's the case, I would say this. You know, in wealthier nations like the U.S., the U.S., by the way, ranked third behind Australia and New Zealand, wealthier nations, I think, are more anxious because when you have more, you have more to lose, right? The more you have to lose, the greater pressure there is upon you to try to control your life and control your circumstances. The more you have to lose, the greater the burden upon you to make the right choices that will lead to the right outcomes in life. Now, since today's Super Bowl Sunday, let me just give uh, my one sports illustration. You know, in sports, which team always has the greater pressure? Uh, it's the team that I think has the most to lose, right? So it's a team that is expected to win. It's a team who invested a lot of money into superstar talent. Uh, it's the team that has high expectations, and everybody looks at the talent on that team, and they say they have a lot of pressure to win. Who has the <coughs> least amount of pressure? It's a team that's the underdog. It's a team that has very little to lose. It's a team that wasn't supposed to be there. It's a team where the expectations weren't as high, and therefore that team can play the game with a greater sense of freedom because they feel much less pressure and anxiety to perform and to win. 
Now, it, it makes sense to me that if you have more, then there's more to be anxious about because there's more you can lose in life. And the pressure that comes with that is greater, and the expectations that come with that upon the individual tends to be higher. You see, that's what leads to our passage here today. First Peter, it's addressing a community that is suffering due to persecution and you know, in a kind of circumstance where you're being persecuted, of course, there is going to be a lot of anxiety. And what does First Peter say to this community? First, he says to them in verse 6, he says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Now, on the surface, that sounds a little bit like strange advice to give somebody who is anxious. Uh, can you imagine someone who is anxious and saying to them, humble yourselves? <laughs> Are you worried about the future? Humble yourselves. Are you worried about what's going on in the economy and in the government and politics? Humble yourselves. Are you worried about how your kids are going to turn out in the future? Humble yourselves. Are you worried about making the right choice in your life? Humble yourselves. That's a weird thing to say to somebody who's going through anxiety, right? That's exactly what First Peter is saying to this community here. Why? Because our anxiety, foundationally and ultimately, comes from a place of pride. It comes from a place of pride. We are anxious because we believe we have more control over our life and our circumstances than we actually do. We believe we have more control over what happens in the future than we actually do. And that's why our response to anxiety is oftentimes trying to grab control, right? Maybe that's why you yell at somebody who messes up your order in a restaurant. Because when you yell at that person, uh, it makes you feel like, well, that, that problem will be corrected. And maybe that's a way of feeling control. Maybe that's why you nag and tend to criticize people because you say, if I nag and criticize people enough, then they'll change. And that's a sense of feeling in control. That's your way of getting control. You know, for me, uh, you know, sometimes I get anxious when I preach, but uh, I used to get more anxious in the past when I preached, especially actually when I started preaching at this church. Uh, you know, New Yorkers were very intimidating to preach to, and uh, I thought I was like the dumbest person <laughs> in the room, and everybody was like coming out of all these like good schools and so smart and successful and things like that. But so I used to be very anxious uh, preaching uh, at this church way in the beginning. You know what the one thing I'm uh, very anxious about when it comes to preaching uh, it's not actually about offending people. I don't mind offending people as long it's, as it's like the gospel or something in the Bible that offends people. I'm okay with that. But I get very anxious about saying something that's wrong, something that's insensitive, something that um, you know, could potentially hurt people without my intending to hurt people, uh, something to unintentionally offend people. I, I hate it when I say something that is a little insensitive. And so... You know, that's happened in the past. I'm sure it'll happen in the future. And usually that happens when I think of illustrations and uh, illustrations <laughs> get me in trouble. And, you know, I've been corrected in the past about those kinds of things. And when that has happened, uh, it just made me really anxious. And you know what it would do on Sunday nights? I, it would just keep me up at night and I'd be laying in bed and I just replay the sermon over and over <laughs> and over again in my head and think about what should I have said? What should I have said differently? That doesn't happen as frequently anymore, um, and hopefully that's a product of growth that um, uh, I'm just not so anxious about those things. But I think when I did that, and I just replayed it in my head over and over again, in a strange way, I think that was my desire to try to get control, 
control over my mistake, control over the situation. If I can change the mistake as I replay it in my mind, maybe it's not so bad. Or if I can correct that mistake and reach perfection, then maybe my anxiety goes away. That's a desire for control. Now, I can see some people seeing that as something to be celebrated because, right, we should all strive for perfection. But if striving for perfection, I mean, if striving for perfection means doing your best, then yeah, that's a good thing. But if striving for perfection is a way to think that you can potentially be perfect and it's rooted in this pride and as long as you try harder and work harder, then you can reach perfection, then that's, that's rooted in pride, friends. You know, the theology books that I read say, only God is perfect and we are not perfect, which means that if we can expect to achieve some kind of perfection on our own merits, it's rooted in a proud heart. Now, maybe <coughs> you're anxious about something related to your work. Maybe you're anxious about the way a certain conversation went with a friend or a family member or a coworker. Why does that make us so anxious uh, and how do we respond? I think in our heart of hearts, we want control. We want to control the present. If I messed up, I need to make things right. We want to control the future. I need to make sure I don't mess up again. And when we assume this position of being able to control the present and the future, we assume a position that only God himself can fill. That's a biblical understanding of pride. Now, I, I want to nuance this a little bit because, you know, I said uh, we are not as in control as we think we are, but that doesn't mean we are like these inactive, passive blobs who do nothing, right? Uh, we're not robots, but we actually have real ability to make real decisions and real choices in life, right? So there is some control that we have in life. We have control over things like our speech, maybe sometimes, right? We have control over our actions, sometimes. We have control over the decisions that we make. Uh, I have some control in terms of how much work I put into preparing a sermon. But we only have control of the things that God gives us control over. And that's called stewardship in the Bible. The reality is, God gives us control, if this is the pie of, <laughs> of everything, maybe God gives us control of like this amount of the pie, and we have to be faithful in this amount of the pie, but in the rest of the pie, God is the one who is ultimately in control. And where we begin to grow uh, proud is when we think our piece of the pie is actually bigger than it is, right? And we think that we should be in control over the things that only God is in control over. Of course, yeah, you have control over things like how you use your time and money, right? You have control over things like how hard you work. But there are a lot of things in that circle that you cannot control. You don't know the unintended consequences of your decisions and what that's going to lead you to. You don't have control over how the weather is going to affect uh, travel time and transportation. And, you know, if you're like me, I get very anxious when I'm running late for something. Uh, you have no control over those kinds of things and how weather may disrupt you. There are a lot of things in this world that you have no control over. You have no control over the reaction of uh, somebody else in terms of how they might respond to something that you say and you do. And I think a lot of our anxiety comes from a place of saying, I need more control, when actually you don't have that much control. Uh, if you think about some of the uh, anxiety disorders, a lot of them are rooted in control. The obvious one is obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, I actually had a friend who had OCD and struggled with OCD in college. 
and he would tell me he used to have to have his pencil <laughs> arranged at the top of his desk and it had to be perfectly parallel to the top of his desk and at uh, one time his roommate like nudged it a little bit and it wasn't perfectly parallel and he just got like super upset and he started yelling at his roommate what is that that's a desire for control you want a perfectly ordered world and you think you have the power and ability to do that i read this article on ptsd this week and uh, it was talking about these a variety of stories related to experiencing trauma uh, there's one story about a young boy who uh, went through a hurricane experience and the floodwaters got higher and higher and it nearly swept away the house. And then uh, seven years later, as he got older, he was so terrified that when it, when it rained that he would refuse to leave his house if it looked like a lot of rain was coming. Why did he refuse to leave the house? Well, staying in the house made him feel like he had some sense of control. Another story about a woman who was in an abusive relationship when she was in college. And that left her very fearful of being in relationships with men. Eventually, she ended up getting married, but in her marriage, she struggled with intimacy with her husband. Uh, not, not just physical intimacy, but relational and emotional intimacy as a result of the trauma in that abusive relationship. Why? Because intimacy made her feel vulnerable and made her feel like she was out of control and her response to that of gaining control is to basically withhold herself and build walls around her. So whether you label, uh, put a label on it or not, I think most of us to some degree relate to that. We want control, and when we don't have control, it freaks us out. We get terrified of the chaos. We get terrified of losing control. And our response is we would do anything that we can to feel like we are in control again. So we return to the words of Peter. And what does Peter say? Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. But he doesn't stop there. He continues. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Commentators are quick to point out that phrase, under the mighty hand of God, that's Exodus language. In the Old Testament, you see that phrase used to describe the God who brought deliverance and freedom to the Israelites when they were enslaved to Egypt. And so under the mighty hand of God is ultimately language of salvation. Humility, which is ultimately about self-forgetfulness and recognizing who you are in view of a mighty God, humility is also not something that is always uh, safe, right? If you think about it, at least in uh, some of the industries that you work in, maybe humility is not seen as a point of strength or virtue. Uh, maybe humility does not help you move up the corporate ladder. Maybe in the culture of some of the industries that you work in, uh, you're supposed to assert yourself. You're supposed to promote yourself. You're supposed to sell yourself in order to get anywhere. But that's why the second part of verse 6 is important. Humbling yourselves is only a position of strength if you are humbling yourselves under someone who is worthy and mighty. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Uh, I heard this illustration from a pastor, but if you were on a plane and something happened to the pilot, uh, the pilot maybe all of a sudden died or something like that, uh, is it a position of strength to say, to sell yourself and basically say, I can land this plane, right? To have that much self-confidence. No, that's a position of weakness because if you're not a pilot, uh, your pride is going to kill you and everybody else on that plane. Humility would say, 
I can't land this plane, but I know the person next to me is a pilot, is a retired Navy pilot, and this person can land this plane. And in that situation, humility is a position of strength because your humility gets you saved along with everybody else. If the God of the Bible has a mighty hand, and if his mighty hand was powerful enough to free the Israelites from Egypt through plague, through the splitting of the Red Sea, shouldn't you humble yourselves and cede control under the mighty hand of God? If the God of the Bible has a mighty hand and he was able to lead a weak, nomadic Israelite army into the land of Canaan so that his promises would be fulfilled, shouldn't you cede control to him? The God of the Bible has a mighty hand who is able to judge the Israelites when they, the oppressed, eventually became the oppressors themselves. Shouldn't you cede control to him under his mighty hand? And if the God of the Bible has a mighty hand that was able to throw down Satan, as we get in Revelation 12, able to conquer and defeat sin and death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, shouldn't you cede control to him? Of course we should. Because he is the one with the mighty hand, not us. But you know, there's another aspect that's mentioned here in this passage, and Peter says this, to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. You see, a complete picture of God is not only somebody who is powerful and mighty and sovereign over all things, but a complete picture of God is also one who deeply cares for us. You know, I heard this interview with an atheist, and she was saying, <clears throat> you know, she thought prayer was like the most narcissistic thing that people do. And the reason she said that is uh, she was saying, how narcissistic is it for people to think uh, they can pray to God and a God who is so powerful would actually care for their small, tiny, measly problems? Uh, that just is like the most narcissistic thing that I can think of. And I guess that's one conclusion you can reach if there is a limit to God's care. But imagine this. What if there is no limits? What if there is no limits to how much God can love and how much God can care? In other words, what if an eternal and infinite God is love himself, as it says in 1 John? Then that means God's care for us is like no other. That means, yes, God can care for you and your small, tiny, measly situations compared to all the problems in the world. And it doesn't decrease his care from other people. Yes, God can care for you. And didn't he demonstrate that care for us in the most ultimate way? When he gave up his precious son to die upon a cross so that, as it says in verse 10, we might be called to his eternal glory in Christ. You see, if the gospel message is true, then shouldn't we know the extent of God's care for us because he has already given to us that which we ultimately need in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what First Peter is getting at. That's what he's saying. You know, when we are anxious, chances are we're probably doubting one of those two things or maybe both of those things. We either doubt that God is powerful and has the ability to bring order out of chaos. We doubt his mighty hand or we doubt God's love and goodness towards us. We doubt that he truly does care for us. 
But the exhortation here is this. When we humble ourselves, when we realize that we are not the mighty and powerful ones, but God is, when we realize that he cares for us, not only when we are worthy of his care, but even when we're not worthy of it, then we experience a kind of peace and liberation that doesn't come from within, but comes from without. When we humble ourselves, we can cast our anxieties upon him so that we don't feel the weight and the pressure of the world to achieve those expectations, to create uh, the joyful life, because God has done it for us. You know, in creation, God created order out of chaos. In Colossians 1, Paul says that all things in the world hold together in Christ, which means this, your world doesn't devolve into chaos because you hold it together. Your world doesn't devolve into chaos because of what you do or the decisions that you make. Your world doesn't devolve into chaos because God holds your world together. Humble yourselves. Realize that. Uh, one of my old professors, he wrote something about this passage, and uh, I'll just conclude with this. Uh, you know, he, he uh, was admittedly a very anxious person, and sometimes he would have, like, these anxiety attacks. And, uh, you know, he was just reflecting on this passage, and he said one time when he was like, having this, like, anxiety attack, he, he started to pray. And, uh, you know, I know the cynical side of us will probably say, well, prayer, how's, how's that really going to help? Uh, but he testifies that prayer really helped him in that moment. Uh, and here's what he prayed in that moment. He said this, Lord, you are God and king. I am your servant. I know you owe me nothing. And for some reason, you have given me everything in Jesus. I trust you. And a couple minutes later, he continued to pray. And he said this, Father, forgive me for always wanting things my way. By your mighty hand, you have created all things. And by your mighty hand, you have rescued your people. I want to live under your mighty hand. Please have mercy. Now, prayer, it, it sounds like such a simple thing, doesn't it? But it, it really does change everything. Uh, when we're anxious, maybe uh, what we pray is just related everything to our circumstances. God, would you change this? Would you do this? And we're kind of directing God according to our vision of uh, how our life should be, right? But this prayer is so beautiful and so profound because it has nothing to do with circumstances at all, but it has everything to do with the nature of our hearts. Prayer is so simple, but prayer itself is actually an act of humbling yourself, is it not? Prayer itself is an act of dependence. Prayer itself is a way to form our hearts and say, God, you are God, and I am not. And that is where we should start with our anxiety. Uh, at the end of this article that he wrote, uh, he offers a paraphrase of this passage. And uh, let me end the message with this paraphrase. This is what First Peter is essentially saying to us. Humble yourself before the Lord. This shouldn't be too difficult. After all, he is God and King, Lord of all. He is a creator. You belong to him. The creature is in the possession of the creator. Humble yourself before the king. And here is one way to express this newfound posture of humility. Cast your cares on him. Did you catch that? When you come humbly before the king, he reveals his unlimited love. 
Who would have thought he actually wants you to cast your burden on him? You were never intended to carry those burdens alone. He is the mighty God who never leaves. You can trust him. And this casting is no mere act of your will. It comes as you know that he is God and you are not. Oh, and you can be sure that he will lift you up from your kneeling position and give you more than you ever expected. That is what First Peter is telling us. <laughs> are you an anxious person? Probably, right? Probably. <laughs> Am I an anxious person? You bet, right? You bet. Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God because he cares for you. Let's pray together.